This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 24. This is Writing Excuses, Political Intrigue. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Margaret. Or are you? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Last um, I checked. I hope so. Uh, let's talk about political intrigue. So can we define this? What do we mean by this? I'll give you a little uh, starter primer. Uh, when I was pitching books back when I had no idea how to pitch books, <laughs> right? I was just wandering around World Fa- Fantasy Convention trying to pitch my book to, you know, anybody who was standing by looking bored. Um, this potted plant. <laughs> <laughs> I pitched to somebody. Um, I think it was an editor at Del Rey or something. And I pitched it at my book as a political book um, about, you know, such and such. And they listened like, oh, you mean political intrigue not political book, make sure you add that word intrigue on when you do this pitch in the future. Uh, to somebody else. To somebody else. <laughs> not me. <laughs> yeah. um, and but solid advice for a pretty yeah. sound rejection. Yeah. yeah, it was, and I always thought, oh, I was presenting, because what I, what I really did mean was a political entry book. I was not writing a book about politics. It was about the, you know, the fun of not knowing all the answers and having a character who doesn't know who they can trust. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the word intrigue, the intri- it is intriguing. It is engaging the curiosity of it, the, uh, the quest for, for answers. Uh, I, I sometimes joke that, um, and, and it's not really a joke, that the third book in the Glamorous Histories, Without a Summer, is a political intrigue mm-hmm. uh, disguised as a Regency romance. It is all about uh, the way things are shaped in court, and and although my characters wind up being somewhat peripheral to it, it is all about shifting those dynamics. I, it, it's worth pointing out that in uh, season eleven, when we talked about the elemental genres, we drew a distinction between mystery and thriller. And re-listening to those episodes as we talk about uh, as we talk about political intrigue might be useful because in some cases. The mystery is, I want to answer the question. And in, in, in thrillers, often it's, uh, uh, I, I already kind of know what the answer to the question is, but I don't know why this is happening. Um, there's, you know, there's looking for the answer and then there's looking for a way out. Um, yeah, I sometimes think about political intrigues as a, uh, as a, a, a heist of information. Yeah. I think that that's, a, that's, that's a great way to put it. Um, when I'm looking at this, it's often you don't know other people's motivations. Mm-hmm. Main mm-hmm. character is trying to figure out what, where does this person lie? Where their allegiances lie? Um, what, what are their actual goals? And these sorts of things. And as I was thinking about political intrigue, I realized a lot of what I write is political intrigue. Oh, because yeah. if you want to have fast-paced, intense fantasy. One way is people always fighting, but that kind of gets boring to me very quickly. And so the next step for that is trying to figure out people's motivations and the, the, you know, the plots they're pulling and things like that. And it is ultimately about trying to, that there is a character who is trying to shift the balance of power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a, a key element to a political intrigue is that shift of power. Yeah. I, I think because sometimes the political, the political intrigue 
can definitely be the informational heist of trying to obtain information. But that doesn't mean that necessarily it's a quest for something. Like, that is part of the guise yes. of, I am trying to accomplish my goal of X, and it is made difficult by the fact of these shifting sands that are all around me. It's it's worth looking at a couple of terms here. Uh, you know, the, the term political, um, it, it's easy to get bogged down in current politics or current events. And really what's, be, what's meant here is uh, balances of power. Mm-hmm. Who has power over who else? Uh, how are these powers related? How is this power expressed? This group has power because they control the military. This group has power because they control the making of laws. Understanding that when you're thinking of the word political is critically important, as is just politics at like the university level or the family level. On the intrigue side of things, the term that I fall back on is informational advantage, uh, which is something that comes up all the time in uh, sociology. Uh, The idea that one group has informational advantages over somebody else, and that gives them power that cannot be disrupted until, coming back to Mary's, you know, heist of information, until the information uh, has flowed the other way and the advantage doesn't exist anymore. What you were saying reminded me of the idea that power can take many different forms. Uh, One of the classes that I teach fairly frequently is one in adaptation, where we ask students to take a piece of literature in the public domain and change it somehow. And I had one student, he was adapting Macbeth, but he he said it in a junior high school classroom. And so you had all of the political machinations of Macbeth, but it was all revolving around, you know, it's not the crown of Scotland. It's who's got social and political capital inside this group of tweens. And so it doesn't necessarily have to deal with kings or presidents or government if you're talking about political intrigue. Absolutely. I mean, the number of times that a Shakespearean political intrigue story has been redone as a teen high school drama, Mm -hmm. I think you would be shocked to see how many times they've done that and how well it translates. Or as a motorcycle gang. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing is that's important about this is that when we're talking about the shift of of power and that the the capital, we're not talking about a shift of physical power, which is why Avengers Civil War is not a political intrigue at all, even though it is very much about a shift of power. Right. Whereas the Winter Soldier kind of is. Winter Soldier kind of is. Yes. Yes. Exactly. That's a that's a very good way to put it. So my question to you is, and this is coming from the the, the professor mind where I get a lot of students who obviously are trying to do this and it is Boring. (laughs) So boring. How do you keep this from being boring and highlight what makes it interesting? The same way you do it with everything. Stakes and giving us a reason to care. What happens if the character fails to accomplish this thing? Why do we care that they're going after this information? If we don't care... We're not, it doesn't matter how compelling you make breaking into someplace. It doesn't matter any of that if we don't care. And that means 
telling us about their motivations. That means telling us about the physical, visceral sensations that they have when they're trying to, you know, hack into a database or use their mystical powers to whatever it is. If we aren't getting those things, it doesn't matter what set piece you've got. It's going to be dull. Yeah. To me, it's that machinations have to result in actions, and actions have to result in complications and ramifications. Things that change, the shifting status quo has to actually be shifting. You don't want a bunch of people sitting around scheming, but nobody ever actually does anything. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem uh, my students run into. I think part of the other problem is that they assume just like action that political uh, intrigue is naturally interesting. And so you get these chapters where they forget they need to establish rooting interest and sympathy for a character and then just immediately dump the political situation on us. They start, you know, this is a young prince at court and here's the politics of what's, you know, this person's behind the throne and all that. And you're like, I don't care yet. So since I don't care yet, I don't want to know who's trying to secretly pull the strings. I want to see this character and see the impact on their immediate life and make sure that I'm interested and then start layering this on. If I need to know, if I need to know who is motivated to kill the CEO, um, then it's useful for me to know a little bit about the lines of succession to being the CEO or what happens if there is no CEO. But relaying that information to me organically through the story versus narrating to me the constitution of the corporation of the book that you are writing I'm getting are two bored. completely different <laughs> things. Just listening to you. I, I think yes. there's... There's an assumption sometimes that in order to understand or be interested in the chess game, you have to see the entire board. Uh, yeah. And in terms for chess, yes, that is literally tr- true. But for metaphorical chess, often you want to, as you say, reveal things more organically, stick to your point of view and let this get discovered. Position the camera right over the bishop's shoulder at what the bishop is aiming at diagonally, and suddenly we're invested in the direction that the bishop can go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, I'm going to make the argument that you have to see the entire board to play chess. You don't have to see it to watch chess. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, and I also would make the point that playing chess when someone else can see the entire board but you can't is part of what a lot of political intrigue That's stories true. are yeah. about. Right? Somebody is moving all these pieces, but you can only move this little one. Well, how long of a driver in Game of Thrones is Mm -hmm. it that, you know, the Starks arrive in King's Landing and all of this stuff is going on and it's Ned blundering around in the dark trying to figure out what's actually happening? Let's go ahead and stop for our book of the week. Um, I'm going to pitch at you The Star-Touched Queen by Roshni Chachi. This is a fantastic book. I love this book. You probably don't need me to tell you that. I mean, it was a fa- finalist for the uh, the the Locus Award and various other major awards. It is um, a really cool political intrigue story that starts in the political intrigue of a um, fan- secondary world, fantastical world based on Indian history and mythology. So the main character is part of a harem. She's grown up in the harem. She's the uh, the daughter of the king. Um, and we start to inch into political intrigue until it 
turns about face and turns into political intrigue in the world of fairy from Indian mythology. And that uh, happens very naturally, but also very surprisingly in a really cool way very early in the story. And from then on, you're like, oh, she was having to play, you know, 2D chess where she didn't know all the pieces. And now she's playing 7D chess and she doesn't even know what kinds of creatures are playing uh, on the playing field uh, with her. And it is um, it is written beautifully. The language is beautiful. Um, the intrigue is interesting. The uh, mythology is fascinating. It is just a really well-done book. So that is The Star-Touched Queen by Roshni Chachi. So let me um, bring it back to you guys. One of the questions that I have is, when you're doing political intrigue and when you're reading it, oftentimes you will eventually find out the, um, the machinations of the, the villain who was behind the scenes, and it is the most convoluted um, they were, you know, their method of winning this chess game was to, you know, to have like 17 different things that don't mean anything. And at the end, they're like, and ha I've won this. And it just, it, it really bothers me when the brilliant machinations come to fruition and they're kind of dumb. Yeah. Yeah, I I have a lot of problems with that where you're like, but there are really a lot easier ways yeah. to accomplish that. Why didn't <laughs> One you? of my favorite lines, it's from uh, one of the Lois McMaster Bejold, uh Miles Verkosigan books, is uh, from somebody who's doing these, you know, political chicanery. And and she says, uh, I, I don't plan a path to victory. I plan so that all paths lead to victory. Interesting. And and as you unravel what this character is doing, you see, yes, it was convoluted, but it was convoluted because depending on the things other people do, you put me on a different path that leads to me winning. That's super interesting. Mm -hmm. But when it's super convoluted because all of these things need to work exactly right for me to cross the finish line, um, suspension of disbelief fails. I... I will say, or I was going to comment on the flip side, so I don't know if you want to duck in first. The first television show I ever worked on was called The Middleman, and the catchphrase of all of the villains on that show was, my plan is sheer elegance in its simplicity. The plan was never simple. Ever. I believe if we had had season two, it would have become, my plan is sheer elegance in its draconian complexity. (laughs) And you can use that to great comic effect. Phineas and Ferb does this really well. Dr. Doofenshmirtz has a very simple problem with a very simple solution, which he decides to solve in arcane ways that don't work. It's pinky in the brain. Mm. Exactly. The brain, yeah. Yeah, so so a lot of times these plots are, in fact, a Rube Goldberg machine. Uh, the way I handle it is that I actually plot my villain like a hero story so that they pick Mm -hmm. the simplest solution possible and all of the plot complications are them compensating for things going wrong. Well, and when we come back to the idea of intrigue and the the term informational advantage, um, the complexities for political intrigue plots are often, you know, I have a very straightforward path and it remains straightforward if I have kept secrets from the following people. Yeah. If I have informational advantage at all of these stages, then I will win. And now, once you have, once you as a writer have plotted that out, you switch sides to your heroes and you now have a big list of obstacles that they need to clear in order to succeed. 
and they don't even know what the obstacles are. Yeah, and I think, again, highlighting the fact that secrets are really important in political intrigue. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's go ahead and go to our homework. Yes, the homework this week is to take a classic fairy tale, something like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, The Little Mermaid, whatever, floats your particular boat, take that story, now assume the story we know was only a cover. What was actually going on? Incorporate as many details from the original story as you would like. If Baby Bear had the smallest serving of porridge, why wasn't it the coldest? Why did they leave their breakfast on the table when they went out walking anyway? Come up with the undercurrents that explains what we see on the surface. Goldilocks and three Russian bears. Da. This is my favorite one we've come up with. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to what you guys come up with on this. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 